Today's scripture is Mark 9, 30 through 50. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for, what, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, I'll just explain that little scramble in case you were watching me. I, uh, I don't really need this, but I always bring it. And uh, somewhere between my office and here, it disappeared. So uh, thanks to technology, while she read that, we printed a new one. Saw that little scramble. There we go. There's some notes on the other one. Somebody finds it. You're welcome to take it. It's got some extra bonus things in the margins. So you can have that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word, the power it has to transform us. God, we acknowledge that we have whew, no power, no power, no authority, nothing uh, of any benefit to give to uh, your people today apart from your word. So, Lord, we come and we just depend on you, on your greatness, on your grace, on your majesty. And so, God, we pray uh, that even as we've just heard your word read, God, that now we would turn our hearts and tune our hearts uh, to what you have for us to hear. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. One of the questions we heard Jesus address today, address in the, the passage here the disciples ask is, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Now, depending on the area you're, you're talking about or the realm or the, the, the whatever you may be, the, the qualifications, the, the measurements of greatness might be a little bit different and therefore it might be debated. Maybe just a, a simple example would be, who's the greatest basketball player 
whoever lived. Is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James? People are going to have different opinions on that based on what, what's the measurement of greatness. Is it about championships? Is it about MVPs? Is it about points scored? Is it about who they played against or, or whatever else it may be? What do you define? How do you define the greatest of all time? What about the greatest baseball player of all time? Is it Hank Aaron or Willie Mays or Babe Ruth? I mean, do you take, take into account all the different positions somebody like Babe Ruth could play? Is it all about hitting? Is it all about uh, world championships? What is it? What's the greatest business leader or entrepreneur? Is it Henry Ford? Is it Steve Jobs? Is it John Rockefeller? Who, who makes the top of the list as the greatest of all times? Maybe somebody would say, you know, George Washington's the greatest president ever. Somebody say, oh no, it's Abraham Lincoln. What would it be? What makes the greatest of all time? Certainly we, we, get a, we could cheat and say, of course, Jesus has to be the greatest preacher of all time because he's Jesus. But then you could say, oh, maybe Peter, you know, after, you know, Jesus is, gets to be his own category, but maybe Peter in the New Testament. But after Bible times, maybe somebody would look back to, uh, you know, one of these um, early church people. I like this guy. His name is John Chrysostom. Chrysostom in Greek means golden mouth. How cool would it be to be a preacher and people called you the golden mouth? Like that must, he must have been a good preacher. Or maybe look to somebody like Charles Spurgeon or George Whitfield or Billy Graham and say the greatest preacher of all time. What, what, what would it take? How do you define greatness? What measurements go in to saying this is truly the greatest of all time? We, you and I might not have ambitions of being uh, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. We may not desire to, to create a technology that is in you know, 75% of the people's uh, pockets in here you know, today. We may not have the, the kind of aspirations of a national political type figure, but we all desire to be good at least, right? We desire some measure of, of, of contributing in the world, maybe something even to the level of greatness. We desire in our own well, way, in our own circles, in our own influence, we desire to be great. So how do you measure that? How do you measure? How do you, how do you pursue being successful and living a, a meaningful life in a way that really matters? We jump in back into the Gospel of Mark as we are uh, going through the second half of this Gospel, and Jesus is making a trek toward Jerusalem. And there's little, little geographical notes kind of throughout that that's, that's where he's headed. And he has proven himself to be the king, but what the disciples can't get through their minds is he's telling them, yes, I'm the king, but I'm headed to a cross. And so we're calling this the king's cross. And then on his way, this final desti destination of Jerusalem, he, he has these moments of teaching. And today they come into the town of Capernaum and enter into a home and Jesus asked them a simple question. He says, hey, uh, you know, what were y'all talking about on the way today? And all the disciples just get silent. They don't want to answer because they're embarrassed about what they were talking about while following the Savior of the world into Capernaum. They're embarrassed. They can't believe them, bring themselves to say it out loud. But Jesus, being Jesus, knew exactly what they were saying. They were discussing which one of them is the greatest. Ah, Peter, is it you? No, is it, is it me, John? No, no, no maybe it's you. They're, they're discussing their, their own greatness while following Jesus. Like just the, let the irony of that sink in. If they're, think, they're following Jesus and they're worried about which one of them is greater. Well, the, probably what's going on, we don't know, but probably what's going on in their minds, they're, they're picturing Jesus as this political ruler. 
He's used words like Christ, Messiah. They think he's going to be the, the, the political ruler over Jerusalem. And you know what every king or president needs? They need cabinet members. They need assistance. Who's going to be the VP? Who's going to be the Secretary of State? And who's going to get stuck with the job being Secretary of Transportation? You know? I don't even know what that guy does, but, uh, you know. Verse 35, we read that Jesus sat down and taught them. Culturally, this was a moment of him. Uh, this is when, when a teacher wanted to give a formal teaching, they didn't, they didn't do it. We, we stand up, right, to give a form. They sat down. This is a way of Jesus saying, this is worth addressing. We're going to address. You want to talk about who's the greatest? We're going to address this right here, right now. We're going to talk about it. And he begins to teach them and says, if any of you would be first. So he's going to address the question. They're asking, who's the greatest? And he's going to address that very question. He said, I heard you arguing about greatness. So let's talk about greatness. Let's talk about being first. He's going to give them a lesson about being great. In the business world, we might hear somebody talk about climbing the ladder. So how do you get, how do you get to be, he says first. This is a comparative term. So this is First, like over other people. How do you get to the top? Maybe in the major league baseball, you know, you, you make it through, the, through the, the minor leagues and you make it to the show, you know? NCAA basketball, you make it to the dance, to the playoffs. You be, you're the one that gets to cut down the nets when you're the champion. If any of you wants to be first, that's what he's talking about. How do you get to be first? When it comes to being great, when it comes to being really somebody, Depending on what field you're in or to, who's your, who you're asking, everybody's got opinions. Everybody's got ideas. This, this is what really makes somebody great. Is it net worth? Is it contribution to society? Is it, is it status? Is it fame? Is it Instagram followers? What is it that truly makes you great? Jesus, he's got, he's got, he's got his two cents about it. Probably worth listening to him, being Jesus and all. What does he say is the path to greatness? The step to being the top, the top dog. First, he says, this, if you want to be first, this is what you do. If anyone would be first, he must be last and the servant of all. Wait, 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 Jesus, I think you missed the question. <laughs> We're talking about being first. How could you be first and last at the same time? Apparently, Jesus' measurements don't quite match the way the rest of the world measures greatness because it says you want to be the top on the top rung of the ladder put yourself on the bottom rung you want to be the top leader serve everybody according to Jesus if you put yourself before anybody if you say my needs are more important than your needs anybody's needs then you're not first because you're not last you didn't make yourself last because you put yourself before somebody else according to Jesus if there is somebody you are unwilling to serve, if there's somebody who you say, I, I will not serve that person or that type of person, I'll serve all those people, but not this one, then you're not servant of all, therefore you're not first, because you're not last, because you're unwilling to serve somebody. The first of all is last of all, and the servant of all. Jesus was giving this lesson in a home, is what we read in Capernaum, and so he turns to a child, maybe one who lived in that home. He brings the child in to the group and tells the disciples in verse 37, anyone who receives one such child in my name receives me. He illustrates this, this idea of being first and last and servant of all by, by bringing in a child. Now, we just had 
children up here. We didn't, I didn't quite coordinate this with Aaron and the Kidfinity worship team, but that actually works out really well. You just saw all these kids here, and he says, do you, do you serve kids? Now, kids, if you have kids, you know kids are adorable. They're great, and they're a hassle, <laughs> right? So he says, and in the first century world, especially, even more so than today, they, they did not view children with quite the status. Children uh, were, were uh, a, a least of these category. They were kind of on the bottom rung. There was, no, there was no status. Children had no status. So like Matthew 25 that Caitlin read a minute ago about serving the least of these children would have been in that category of the least of these. So Jesus brings in a child and says, are you willing to receive one of these? Are you willing to serve the least of these? That's how you know you're first because you're last and you're willing to serve anybody. Greatness, according to Jesus, is not measured the same way the world measures greatness. To be first is to be last. Be willing to serve everybody. The very next verse, verse uh, 38, I believe it is. Yeah, 38. Uh, we don't know if it's immediately in the conversation. It could have been a break. Mark's putting a lot of things together. But certainly there's a connection. One of the disciples, John, pointed out that they had seen somebody doing some work, ministry work, in this case, casting out demons, like had been done earlier in Mark, like they had failed to do in, earlier in the chapter, and they had done successfully earlier in Mark. But the problem with where they saw this is that the person doing that work was using Jesus' name, but he wasn't one of the disciples. And so John, kind of in this conversation on greatness and last and first and servant, he says, Here, here's the problem. They, they tried to stop this guy because John's, John's wording was, he was not following us. He was not following us. Now this might sound like, again, it sounds like a different story, but there's a connection here. There's a reason why these are going together. Can you see what the disciples are focused on? They're asking questions like, who is the greatest among us? Who is the best? And, hey, that guy over there, how come he's not following us? How come he's not following us? The disciples are worried about themselves. They're thinking about themselves. And do you hear what Jesus is telling them, how he's rebuking them? I'd summarize it this way. Here's Jesus' point to the disciples and to us. It's not about you. It's not about you. Many of us have probably said that to someone else, but it is hard when it is said to us. So let's all hear that as first directed toward us today. It is not about you. It was so hard for the disciples to hear that they actually didn't hear it. They continued to miss this for quite some time. The disciples, or like us, like the disciples, we don't like when this is directed at us. So when Jesus said, if anyone must be first, he must be last of all and servant of all, it's hard for us to hear that. But that Jesus' words there, last, first, servant of all, is meant to be a very sharp arrow directed at our hearts of pride. We're meant to hear Christ's words piercing deep in us to all the places where we elevate ourselves above other people. We're supposed to hear Christ's words and say, you know what, he's right. It's not about me. It is not about you. Jesus' words are poignant, piercing, powerful, and they're a call for humility. We would all be wise to admit we all need to hear that today. We are all tempted this way. Pride very well may be described as the, the root of all sin. And so like the disciples, we too need to hear that it's not about us. Anytime, uh, who, who for you is the first person you think about 
when you get out of bed? Yourself, right? More often than not, you're thinking about what you need. The last thing before I go to bed, I'm thinking about what I need or what today happened or whatever it meant to be. Most of my day, I spend prioritizing me, thinking about what I need to do, and this is my task for whatever's ahead of me. Anytime something happens, the first thing we process is, how is that going to affect me? What's the change in weather mean for me? What's the change in schedule mean for me? And even if I'm thinking about how it affects other people, I'm thinking about how what happens to them changes me. I can find a way to get back to me pretty quickly. Jesus is calling for a radical shift in our lives, a, a deep, deep change in the position of our hearts. Jesus is calling for living in a world that is very, li- living in a way that is very different from the world around us. It's not about you. It's hard to hear, probably need to hear it a lot more times. So, so do me a favor, turn to the person next to you and say, It's not about you. All right, now the person on the other side needs to hear it. Tell it to the other person on the other side. It's not about you. You got it? All right. Now, you may need some practice later. So husbands and wives, you can tell that to each other later today to remind, to remind one another. Parents, your kids need to hear this. Your kids need to hear this. So later on today, parents, at some point, pull your kids aside and tell them, it's not about you, kids. Kids, your parents need to hear this. So later on today, kids, pull your parents aside at some point and say, Mom and Dad, it's not about you. It's not about you. We don't like this, but it is reality. 1543, a guy named Nicholas Copernicus shook up the world with a new scientific theory Well, I Googled this. Apparently there were some people before, but Copernicus gets the credit. But anyway, we'll stick with that. 1543, new idea. His idea was radical that the sun is stationary and the earth is going around it, not the other way around. And people didn't like that. We want the earth to be still. We want to be in the middle and the sun to go around us. This idea was so controversial that when Galileo, a little bit later, 1610 and then again in 1633, published a bunch of observations and arguments favoring this theory of a solar system where the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around. That was so controversial, they put Galileo under house arrest for the last nine years of his life. We don't like being displaced from the center of the universe. We want to be in the middle. We don't like the idea of us having to revolve around something else. We want everything else to revolve around me, myself, and I. I started making a list of times where like, I kind of prefer for people to think about me, you know, and talk about me. It's times like when I'm sick, you know, I mean, of course, when you're sick, you need people to take care of you. So you put yourself first. You know, I kind of also like it when I'm, when I'm happy, when I've got something to celebrate. And I, I want to tell people about the things I want to celebrate. But also like when I'm sad and there's something I want to, you know, mourning or grieving, I want people to talk about me. And, um, you know, on the good days, you know, I've got something to share and the bad days, and I started to notice a pattern. There's not many days left that I don't really want to be the middle. One of the main reasons I'm convinced social media is so popular is that it gives us all a platform to talk about the, fav- the thing we, we are most happy about, which is ourselves. We get to post pictures of ourselves for people to comment on. We get to comment on their pictures and give our two cents about what they're sharing about and our opinions about this, that, and the other. We get to talk about or give expressions from 
my own vantage point. I'm convinced if the world didn't have a pride problem, Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't have made a dime, you know? <laughs> With our world's monumental pride problem, though, they've got plenty of money to make. If anyone would be first, Jesus said, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's not about you. It's not about you. When Jesus' disciple John was bothered that someone else was doing ministry work, casting out demons, and not, not following him, did you hear what his complaint was? He said in verse 38, the guy was not following us. He was not following us. Like, do you, to John, come on, man. Like, do you remember when Jesus called you? He said, come and follow, not us, <laughs> me. They're supposed to be following Jesus, but John's like, hey, they're not, they're not following us. You know, Jesus, me, me and you, we're like on the inner circle here. He's trying to put himself at the middle. John, like the rest of us, need to learn, hey, John, it's not about you. It's not about you. This other guy who was not a part of their group, their tribe, their troop, their, their, their little cohort, he, he, must have been, he must have known something right because did you hear how he was doing ministry? He was doing it in Jesus' name. And so Jesus tells him, hey, if he's not against us, he's for us. He, he's using Jesus' name. He's, he's out doing things in the, the right name. He's not some other religion or some other you know, spirituality. or practice. He's following Jesus, just not one of the twelve. John has drawn a, a little bitty circle around probably 12 people plus Jesus, 13 people, and says this is the in crowd. you got to be inside here. Jesus, he draws the circle a little bigger than John. says it's okay if you're not with the 12. It can be a little bit bigger than that. Today we call this temptation tribalism. If you're not a part of my tribe, if you don't look like me, talk like me, believe like me, vote like me, speak slang like I speak slang, then you're not one of us. You've got to be real, the circle is real small. We're tempted to draw it so small and say, you've got to be in here. John's problem was he was too tribalistic, focused on our, our little bitty circle. Jesus says, if you're not against us, you're for us. What do you mean by that? What's, what's the solution? If John's circle was too small, if he was saying, yeah, it'd be like me, it's got to be like us, then what's the opposite? The world will tell you it's universalism. There is no circle. Just everybody can do whatever they want, right? The world, the, cult, the culture says the only way to not be prideful and bigoted and egotistical is to, especially when it comes to religion, is to say everybody can believe whatever they want and you just do your thing, I'll do my thing. And that's kind of the pluralistic, universalistic world we live in. All religions are equal and valuable. It's all relative. But clearly Jesus was not teaching that. He was not teaching that. Another way to, to, to get at this is to say, if it's, if it's not about me, then who is it about? Who is it about? Knowing good and well that I'm not the first person to say it's not about you. Like, that's not a phrase I invented, of course. I Googled it, like all good pastors. You Google what you're going to say. Turns out there's a pretty popular book on Amazon called It's Not About You. That's free if you have an Amazon Prime account. You can download it today. The opening sentence of that short uh, little booklet is, Life is not about you. It's about what you do for others. And the faster you're able to get over yourself, the more you can do for the people who matter most. That's pretty insightful, right? He goes on to argue that the, most, the, the, the way to live the most meaningful life is to devote your life to other people. That's essentially what we've been saying, kind of, right? Seems right, seems true. Don't, don't put yourself first. 
Be the servant of all. It sounds like Jesus' word. Don't be selfish. Be selfless. That's essentially the argument of that little book. And yet, there's a very important difference in what Jesus was teaching and what that guy, I didn't write down the author's name, what he was arguing in his book. You see, it is very possible to be selfless and also be gospel-less. You can be both. The world, yes, calls you to, the world around you says you should just take care of yourself. Be prideful. Do what you want to do. But the really good people out in the world say, no, that's a bad idea. Because it just, it leads you nowhere good. Be selfless. That's a much better way to live. And that's a half truth. That is a better way to live. It looks, sounds like the Bible. But there's a piece missing. There is a, a growing world of research around the benefits of humility in our world. In fact, one of the best-selling business books written by a guy named Jim Collins is called Good to Great. And he ranks leaders about how, how great leaders act. And he studies all these people, Fortune 500, CEO-type people, and he, he looks at all their qualities. And the, the amazing thing in his research that he contributed that people were just so amazed by was that these, these incredible leaders, among all their other capabilities and talents, they were humble people. And all of us that have a Bible are like, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said that. But whatever, okay, Jim, great. I'm glad you found that in today's world. However, the business mindset is that be humble because your, your company will do better. You'll actually make more money. You, you'll have a greater profit share. Your, your, your company will be happier and successful. That's all true. And, and, and good gifts of common grace that God has given to the world. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. That's not Jesus' point. There's a, something a little bit different. Jesus was teaching something different than just be humble because it, it makes things better for you and you get the things you really wanted anyway and you get them faster and better because you went about it the holy way. <laughs> That's not Jesus' message. No, Jesus was teaching them as he's making his way to Jerusalem that he has come and he has come to die and he has called them to follow him. That's what he's telling his disciples. So that path includes heading to a cross ourselves. Hard to be a great CEO if you died on a cross. Jesus' method's a little different. Jesus' life and example points to something greater. And we see that, verse 37, 38, 39. He uses this phrase, in my name, in my name. And you recognize that he's talking about more than just a kind of a general, generic humility. He's talking about living a cruciform life that's only possible because of what Jesus did himself. If you go back up just the beginning of this passage that we read about the Son of Man, that he must be delivered into the hands of men. He had to come and die. So our life, to be humble, to be living a worthy life, is to be a life that's not about us, is to be living a life that's about Jesus. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. The reason it's not about us is there, there is one who is far greater than us. How so? Back at verse 31, Jesus taught his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now if you know the end of Mark's gospel, if you just keep reading ahead, or if you just know the Christian story, you know that Jesus was teaching about what was coming in his life. In verse 32, the disciples clearly did not understand what he was saying. 
and for good reason. Jesus' favorite description of himself is this phrase, son of man. And if you're holding, depending on what trans, English translation you're holding, it, those words may actually be capitalized in your Bible, son of man. And the reason your English translators decide to capitalize that is they wanted to tip your hat to something, tip their, tip their hat, your hat, whatever, to, to get you to see this is more than just saying Jesus is human. That is true. He was fully human. But this phrase, son of man, just doesn't, doesn't just mean any old human. He's referencing back to Daniel chapter 7, one of the most important prophecies about the coming Messiah. And in Daniel chapter 7, we read about the Ancient of Days, God himself, and this figure who comes on a cloud, who can walk on a cloud. And he describes him as having the appearance like a son of man. So he is, he's human in form. And yet, the Ancient of Days gives all the kingdoms, all the peoples, people from all tribes and language and nations, as a, as a gift to be under his dominion forever. What human can reign over all tribes and language and nations and do it for all of eternity? The only way that's possible is this if you're, he's described as human, but also fully God. Daniel chapter 7, when he talked about the Son of Man, he's talking about the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He is, he's talking about Jesus. So Jesus says, the Son of Man, he's referencing himself, the one who's reigning over all people and reign forever. So disciples heard that, but then the next thing he said about him is he's the Son of Man will be handed over to the hands of men and die. And the disciples can't get their head around that. Which one is it, Jesus? Are you the one who reigns forever over all people? Or are you going to die? And they know that when Peter last heard Jesus say this, and Peter kind of rebuked Jesus, like, I don't want you to do that. Peter got called Satan. So this time the disciples just stepped back. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. I don't know. They're confused. They don't understand this category of someone who reigns forever and yet is willing to die. The testimony of Scripture points to see who this guy is and how great he is. Now, I, yeah, I'm going to give you one. I don't know if you'll stick with this one. But he says in verse 31, The Son of Man is going to be delivered. Depending on, again, depending on your translation, it may say betrayed. I think delivered is the right word. What's the subject? I'm going to chase a rabbit here. I'll be careful. What's the subject of the word delivered? There's not one. It's a passive is going to be delivered. Who delivered him? God did. God delivered him. And even if you don't take it out of, out of Mark 9, 31, Acts 2, uh, 23 would tell you the same truth. Jesus' crucifixion was God's idea. God had this in plan. God had this in mind because he was willing to send his son to a cross to show you his love, to show you how much he cared about you, to redeem you so that you would spend the rest of your life glorifying Him. That was the greatest act of love ever in human history. God has always been great. He has never needed to prove His greatness to us. He has always been love because of the very foundation, the very core of who He is. He is love. And yet He, in His grace, decided to prove that to us by delivering up His own Son to a cross. If there's ever a doubt about who is the greatest, the cross and the resurrection settle the debate forever. The greatest isn't you or me, it's Jesus. And that's why our life is meant to be about Him and not about ourselves. God sent His Son so that we could live 
with him. The reason humility and service are the path to greatness is that Jesus himself walked this path. Jesus called us to take up our cross and follow him. That's the path he took. It's a path to greatness, but it's a path that goes into the grave before it comes back to heaven. Greatness comes through serving others because that's how Jesus lived. Greatness is about loving our neighbor instead of loving ourselves because that's how Jesus lived. And Jesus redeemed this so that the bottom rung of the ladder does become the top rung. He is crucified and buried, and yet he is ascended and given the name above all names. This only makes sense if Jesus died and resurrected. If Jesus didn't die and resurrected, go be the top whatever. Be the most famous. Get all the points. Whatever it may be. You can do it, and the world will, will clap for you, and you'll get all your accolades in this world, and then you'll die and it'll be over. Enjoy it while it lasts. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And yet, if Jesus did die and resurrect, live for something beyond the grave. Live for your reward being in heaven. Live for a treasure that's stored up for you. Jesus warned the Pharisees about praying and giving alms for the sake of of getting praise of people. He says, great, you get praise here? Enjoy it, because that's all you're getting. God isn't glorified in that. Live for something beyond the grave. Live as a one who loves your neighbor, as one who cares for others, because that's how Christ lived. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. He called people. The the repetition, the phrase that's repeated over is, things are done in His name. In His name. Over and over it says that. The reason why, uh, He said, receive children in my name. And the one who was doing work, he did work, uh, did ministry in his name. Why would he describe it that way? Why would he use that that phrase? Well, in his name is about receiving people on behalf of Jesus and doing work by his power and for his glory. A a name is about your reputation, right? Whose name are you most concerned about? what's What's the reputation you're most worried about? I remember years ago before I was in Fountain Inn, there was a time um, somebody blasted me online for something I did. Uh, to my memory, it was like I didn't go visit them after their third cousin's twice-removed great-nephew's goldfish died or something like that. That probably wasn't it, but it felt that trivial to me. I don't, it was probably more important than that. And I was never, I'm never online, but somebody called me, and I was later really embarrassed in my immediate reaction because you know what happened when I heard that? I was worried about my name. I was worried about my name. But you know what was in that post? The, the post online was, had something about the, the name of the church where I was, but it also called me pastor, which means it associated me with the Lord. And I was more worried about my name. I was worried about my reputation. Whose name are you living for? Are you living for the glory of God? Or are you worried about how many accolades get added to your own name? The Bible speaks highly of the value of a, of a good name, but we should be more concerned about the name of Christ, more concerned about His glory, about His fame, about His honor. Are you worried about and concerned about exalting Him above all other names? We should be, because it's not about us. It's about Him. Did you hear that He said that's why you should receive a child? Verse 37, who receives a child in my name receives me. If you try to do things in your own name, it will only go so far. Ministry in your own name will only get you so far. You have, what kind of power do you have? What kind of wisdom do you have? What kind of energy do you have? 
If you're doing it in your own name, it won't last too long. But you know what the power of the name of Jesus? You know where the end of the, 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 the limit of that power is? There is none. Jesus has no limits. He is infinite. You won't run out of power. You won't run out of stamina. You won't run out of compassion. You won't run out of care. Because doing ministry in the name of Jesus, whether it's doing what I'm doing, or loving your neighbor, loving your spouse, being committed, being steadfast, those are the kind of things that if you do them in your own power for your own name's sake, you will run out. But if you do them for the name of the glory of God, if you do them in His name, for His glory, there's no end. We all know what it's like to live for our own glory, but what does it look like to live for the glory of Christ? We live so many times, we, we are so tempted to be so focused on ourselves that we'll do anything good, we'll, do even, we'll, we'll take good things and we'll try to do them for ourselves. Like I hear, and I get it, I'm in church I, a lot, I've said this probably at some point, we'll say things like, I, I got a lot out of church today. Or I didn't get something out of church today. And by, by God's grace, we, we pray that you do get things out of church. That is a good thing if God gives you something out of church today. But by, by the very formation of that sentence, you recognize who you've made church about. If it's a primarily about what you get out of church, then it's about me. Even church we can make about me. You know who we want to get something out of? We want to get out of something out of church today? God. It's about what we give. We show up that He gets something out of church today. We want Him to get our praise. We want Him to get our, 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 the adoration of our hearts. We want to give Him submission. We want to give Him praise. We want to give Him a willingness to be taught and shaped and direct by His Word. We want to give Him encouragements by giving Him, by, by blessing other people. We show up to give, not to get. But it's so easy for us to be self-focused, to be focused on me, myself, and I. As Dave Moore used to say, the unholy trinity. <laughs> Who are you living for? The very last section, I'll give you very quickly, verse 42 to 50. Jesus says, the stakes on this couldn't be higher. They couldn't be higher. Eternity is in the balance. Verses 42 to 50 give us some of the strongest language about hell in the whole gospel of Mark. I don't want to shortchange, but I won't keep it long. Jesus spoke about a man doing ministry as not being against us, so therefore he is for us. So let me end by calling you to that same heart today. Live for him, not against him. When you recognize life isn't about you, it's about him, then it changes everything we do. And it calls us, we are invited to live not against him, but for him. Living, living for him means protecting others from falling away. Verse 42 is this warning about causing other people to stumble. And the word causes to sin, the way the ESV translates it, is all just one word in the original. It means it's a, it's a metaphor like for like putting a stick in front of somebody or a log in front of somebody that would make them trip up in their walk. He says, don't, don't do that. Be careful. Don't lead somebody away from the Lord. And then he begins this series of very graphic images. In, in literature, we call this hyperbole. He's giving exaggerations. So... He's not telling you to go drown yourself or cut off your hands. Like, I know you, you probably knew that, but just as a you know, clarification. He's giving you graphic images so you see the severity of sin. 
If we are living for ourselves, he's saying eternity is in the balance. We'd much rather have a, one less member on our bodies than to, to, to be cast into hell for eternity. So he starts with saying protect others, and then he goes from there to saying protect yourself. Be on guard. Don't live a life that's going to lead you to an eternity separated from God. All of life is about Him, so we must be on guard. Another way of connecting this to the passage is that the first part of this passage is about humility. The last part of the passage is about holiness. Humility and holiness He calls together. If our life isn't about us, then we're not pursuing our own selfish desires with our eyes, our hands, or feet. We're pursuing God's glory. We're not living for ourselves. We're living for Him. Life is not about pride or fleshly pleasures. It's about a relationship with Christ. It's about pursuing not our own sin, but enjoying and delighting and belonging to Jesus. Jesus turns the language for the disciples one time in the way. He says, if somebody gives you a cup of water because you belong to Christ, the most simple of gifts, right? And yet it's, why, why do they get it? Because they, they're part of Jesus' family. He says, this is, this is the gift. You get to enjoy being with Jesus. What greater thing is there? When we live as servants, when we live as loving our neighbor, it's not that we never get anything. We get the greatest thing. We get to be with Jesus. He warns us that it's not going to all be easy. It says you'll be salted with fire. This is one of the most confusing phrases in the whole Gospel of Mark. But I'll give you just a brief take on it. That it, to be salted, talking about being uh, uh, something offered on the sac, uh, at the altar, was, uh, was always salted, Leviticus tells us. So he says you're going you're to be giving up something that's, uh, as an offering, but a fire is something that purifies. It's going to be purified. Living life in a way that it isn't pursuing selfish desires and prideful, lustful desires, that's going to be dangerous. It's going to be hard. It's going to cost you something. But it is a living sacrifice. It is worth it. You'll be purified in it. And one of the ways you'll know is that you'll live in a distinct way. You'll be humble. You'll at peace with one another. God calls us to that kind of life. And He warns us about the dangers of not living that way. Spend time just thinking to this week on the way He describes hell. The word He used here is the word Gehenna, which is a reference to a valley outside of Jerusalem that was a, a horrific dump. They put burned trash out there, but they also where they they threw bodies of people who couldn't, didn't have a place to be buried. And so it's just an awful, smelly place. And Jesus says, he uses it metaphorically, but he's saying, hell, in, in Gehenna, the, the, the trash dump, you know what, the fires, they eventually go out there. And even the worms that are eating whatever was alive and died and decaying, those worms eventually die. But the comparison Jesus makes to hell is that there, the fire never goes out. It's unquenchable. And the worms never die. Jesus is saying, Eternity is in the balance here. If you live your life for yourself, trying to be great by the world's standards, trying to be me, myself, and I, and putting yourself first, then you don't know the Lord. And you will spend eternity in a place where worms never die and fire is never quenched. But if you do recognize that life isn't about you, that there is one who is infinitely greater than you, who has invited you into a relationship with Him and given you the chance to belong to Him, then you get to spend eternity with that as your reward. Knowing and following the Savior of all people. The one who reigns over all peoples and all languages and all nations. 
and he reigns forever and ever. This is not just a simple moral lesson or a quick, quick, trip to, quick uh, steps to becoming a, a better level five leader, although it is a good idea. You'll be a better leader if you're humble. Jesus is saying eternity is in the balance. If you live for yourself, you're not going to be following the Lord. But if you live for him, you'll be a part of something far greater. The disciples got themselves into trouble by arguing about who was the greatest. But because they did, we got a pretty good lesson out of it. We got to see what it means to truly be great. It's not to put ourselves first, but it's to follow the one who is great and who gave his life for you so that you could spend your life not pleasing yourself, not seeking your own desires, but following him. So remember, it's not about you.